I just wanted to add my personal welcome to everyone this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, please join us tonight <clears throat> at Kim and Jerry's. Uh, I think it's going to be a very fun, wonderful evening uh, that everyone will enjoy. And so try to come and be with us. Uh, if you have interest, curiosity, concerns, or questions about anything related to our new budget, I'm telling them, wait just a second. Um, uh, right after the church, we're gonna right after the service, we're gonna meet right here, have just for a couple of minutes, and give you a chance to hear any explanations that you might have related to the the budget for the new year, or uh, give you an opportunity to share anything, ask anything that you want to related to the budget. But it's just for those of you that would have interest or curiosity or concern related to that. If you're a student, you are dismissed. Uh, to go be with Mr. Nick and Miss Francis and Miss Sherry and Miss Ivy. I forgot all who's doing what today, but they're all back there. So you can go do that. Um, my brother-in-law, uh, Eric Brand, um, is going to be sharing today. Uh, I've not heard Eric, which is amazing, but I've not heard Eric speak and teach and preach, but just a few times um, in my life, to be quite honest with you, because normally when you're preaching or speaking, I'm, I'm doing the same thing somewhere else. But the half a dozen times that I have heard him teach, I always walk away with insight into my Savior and to his word and his plans for my life that are remarkably fresh and um, life-giving. And so, I, to be honest with you, I wanted to hear a fresh word uh, related to the story of Christmas uh, this month. And uh, I couldn't think of anybody, truthfully, maybe John Piper. But other than Dr. Piper, I couldn't think of anybody that I'd rather come and share from God's Word some insight related to the birth of our Savior and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it for my own self, but I wanted it for our church family as well. So my friend, you come and share with us. Hello, my name is John Piper. <laughs> My name is Eric Brand. I am Sherry Brand, Ray's brother, and Larry is my brother-in-law. I've known Larry longer than you have. I guess I met Larry when I was about 11 or 12, somewhere around there. We joined the same church. The Brands joined the same church that the Rays were at, and I have uh, a complete lifetime of memories with Larry, and if... Uh, you have chosen Larry to be your pastor. You have chosen well. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the privilege and the opportunity that you have given us to be able to come before you and to before your word. Father, when we read the word of God, we are looking at you in the face. And Father, I pray that you will reveal yourself, that you'll speak truth. Father, I pray that as we come away from uh, being in your presence, that it makes an impact that we do not get over quickly. 
that it is something that changes us and something that goes into our very being. Father, I pray that as we speak that we will find you and that we will hear you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay. All right. That is... I cut my teeth nothing. I can label at the Memphis Union Mission, and a cup of coffee is nothing. I can promise you. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus." There's a movie that's in the theaters right now called A Star is Born. This is the fourth time that it's been through. So depending on your age, when you hear the title of the movie, your, your mind immediately goes back to the main character, which is the girl in that. In 1937, it came out the first time. It was Janet Gaynor. Never seen that movie. And then it came out again in 1954. It was Judy Garland. Uh, I've seen that one on Turner Classic. I remember in 1976, uh, I was 13 years old, when it came out again, it was Barbara Streisand. And then now it's come out in 2018, and it's Lady Gaga. So you, you sit here and you watch this movie, and the movie is about a star. And the star is this man, this guy that has this measure of success, and he has made it all the way to the top, only to realize that he's not as big as he thought that he was that the star was going to be someone that was a virtual unknown, there was going to be someone in the shadows that was going to come up and was going to completely trump him. And the struggle of how do I go from thinking I was the star to realizing that the star was going to be following me and I wasn't the star at all. I love the character of Joseph, but there's a couple of insights in Joseph's life that I resonate with and I believe everybody can. First of all, the whole concept, and I've always heard it being taught nobly, he found out that his wife was pregnant, and being righteous, he chose to put her away privately. I don't think the Holy Spirit is revealing that little bit of truth to give us a kudo for Joseph. I think it's a character flaw. I think that what's happening with Joseph is Joseph is of the line of David. It says it in the very next verse. 
that he finds out that his wife is not perfect. And it's going to be humiliating. It's going to be uh, degrading for the line of David. And so what he's going to do is he's going to cover it up the best that he knows how. But when he, it's, it says, and Joseph being a righteous man, but then it goes down and it says, when the angel revealed in a dream in verse 20, Joseph, son of David. So what we have going all the way back, you really, really want to be hierarchy in the nation of Israel. You really, really want to be born in the line of Judah. You really want to do that. Now, everybody is of Abraham. And everybody's of Isaac, everybody's of Jacob. But when you get to the 12 sons, really the 13 sons, if you will, the 13 tribes, when they take Joseph and make him into two different tribes, when you look at all of that, there is a tribe that's going to shine, that's going to stand up above all the others. And it's Judah. He was number four in the line. He wasn't the firstborn, but as Jacob's sons, as the nation of Israel, as these sons are being born, number four, Judah is the one that's going to be the lion. And as the old man Israel, as Jacob is dying and he's blessing each one, he talks about how the lion's whelp is going to come through this son as he's laying his hands on each one. Well, from that point on, you watch this line and you can see what God's going to be doing in the nation of Judah. If you're born as a little boy, being, a, being one of Judah is, is a privilege. Then we watch when they want a king. God doesn't want them to have a king. And if you're really watching your Bible closely, because God doesn't want them to have a king, he does something very significant. He selects a man named Saul to be their king, but Saul's not of Judah. He's of Benjamin. He's not of the king tribe anyway. So God goes, you want a king? It's not what I want to do. It's not the right time. This is not what I want. But if you want a guy, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you somebody that's tall and strong and handsome and all. I'm going to give you what you want. Well, God, he's not even of the line of Judah. Anyone that was seriously watching during that day, anyone that lived there, anybody that would have been like a Samuel, and as he's going to anoint Saul, he knows from the get-go, this is not going to be God's ultimate plan. The line's not going to go from Saul and then through Saul's sons. It's going to have to take a diversion somewhere. The very next king, we see David. And David is of the line of Judah. And that becomes so significant. And we watch as we go through all the genealogies and we go through the rest of the Old Testament until we get to Joseph. And here's Joseph, and it's still significant when he has his business card made Hello, my name is Joseph. I am of the line of David. And here comes this angel. And what Joseph's doing is he's guarding the line. The, the baton has been passed from the line of David on and on. And everyone knows that there's going to be a Messiah that comes one day. And the Messiah is going to come through the line of David. And every mother is probably wondering, because it's so vague, I wonder if my son is the Messiah. There's a good chance that Joseph's mom thought or wondered or the possibility, I wonder if it's Joseph. And now Joseph, he has picked a woman, Mary. They have met, they have dated, and now they've gotten to the point where they're engaged. And then he finds out that she's pregnant. This just messes up everything. So what I'm going to do 
I'm not necessarily going to face it. I'm not necessarily going to forgive it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just put it away. So the problem that I have in my life, what I'm going to do with it is just don't give it any attention. I'm going to just let it starve from from, uh, being ignored. And so I'm going to put it over there. And then an angel comes in. This is significant to me because we've already seen an angel twice. We've seen Gabriel. And he didn't speak in a dream. He came bodily. The first time as we go back and we're watching the, the story of the birth of Jesus, this man Gabriel, this angel Gabriel appears and he appears inside the Holy of Holies and there's a priest in there named Zechariah and he turns around and there's an angel that's standing there and he says, you're going to have a son. His name is going to be John and there's no dream about it. It is an encounter and those in the know have heard the story. They're aware of it. And then about three months later, the same angel, Gabriel, he comes from before the throne of God. I stand before God and I am God's mouthpiece. And he comes and he speaks to this little teenage girl named Mary. Which, unbelievable. In the Bible, you really have to always watch when it gives the name of a woman because it was so masculine. It was such a male-dominated society that when it brings up a woman and it gives her name, But when the angel comes and begins to speak to her, and you watch this and you see it, and you're going, as God is speaking, he is sending firsthand straight from the throne. Gabriel, go straight to Zechariah and speak to him. Gabriel, go directly to Mary and speak to him. All right, we need to let Joseph know. Lord, Gabriel's reporting for duty. Do you want me to go and speak to Joseph? No. We'll send an angel an unnamed angel in a dream. He didn't get the Gabriel encounter. What he gets is he wakes up and he's had a dream. And he's had this dream and the dream is not necessarily the most positive for him in his life. What it is is I'm about to do something crazy significant. But it doesn't necessarily concern you. It's going to go through Mary. Now, this child, Jesus, is going to be of the line of David, but he's not going to be of the line of David through you. He's going to be of the line of David through Mary. If you watch the genealogies from Joseph and Matthew and and the genealogy of Mary and Luke, they come together and become the same genealogy with a man named Zerubbabel. And so what's happening is as God is going through this fullness of time, when he gets to Zerubbabel, it takes the path less traveled. And instead of following the male line, and all of a sudden, Joseph is the Messiah, or Joseph's son is the Messiah, it turns and goes, this is going to be a little odd, but we're going to follow the line of a woman And we're going to go from Zerubbabel, and we're going to get to Mary. Mary is going to give birth to flesh and blood that is of the line of Judah, but it's through the seed of the woman. It fulfills the prophecy that God gave all the way back in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we have Adam and we have Eve, and they have fallen. They've sinned. And when they sin, God comes in. He speaks to them. He gives a curse to the serpent. 
and he gives a prophecy, a, fu- a fulfilling restoration to Eve. And he says what's going to happen is the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent is going to bite the heel of the woman. And you'll sit there and you'll look and go, a woman doesn't have seed. The seed is of the man. How in the world is a woman going to have seed? And what God is revealing in Genesis 3, the fall happens, and when God comes in to speak, he tells them of the virgin birth. There's one coming of the woman. And then we watch Adam and Eve. They have Cain and Abel. They're not of the woman. They're of Adam. And then they have Seth. And then we go through all those Old Testament names. We go through Enoch, and we go through Methuselah, and we go through Noah, and there's never the seed of the woman. And we don't hear of it, really, until we get to Isaiah again. And when we get to Isaiah, he tells us the virgin's going to conceive. There's going to be a virgin. And just by default, if the virgin conceives, it's leaving the man out. And so, Joseph, something's going to happen here, and your role is to step aside. And so, what's going to happen is this girl, she's going to have a baby. She's already pregnant. We're telling you, you're getting this dream. It's already happened. The Holy Spirit has come upon her. She has conceived. She's never been with a man, but she has conceived that of God He is going to be a priest. He's going to be a king. But the kingship is not primarily from Judah. And the priesthood is nothing to do with Levi. He's going to be, Hebrews tells us, of the lineage of Melchizedek. He is going to be this priest and this king with a direct line that comes from the God that sits on the throne. And I'm going to do this through this woman, Mary. They're going to have this child, and this is the role that you have to play. You guys are going to be despised and rejected because he's going to be despised and rejected. There's going to be more attack on this little boy than you can imagine and you're going to have to go through those dredges with him. When we finally get to the ministry of this little boy, you're not even going to be around anymore. By the time that he becomes 30 years old, he goes to John to be baptized. From that point on, you can search the scriptures, and where's his dad? His dad's nowhere to be found. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, his concern, one of his concerns, is to take care of my mother. Where is Joseph? Joseph, you're going to fade away into oblivion. We need you to watch after the mother. We need you to make sure that she is taken care of, that the baby can be born. The baby is going to have to go to Egypt. Herod's going to try to kill the baby. I need you to get the baby to Egypt. I need you to get the baby back, but don't bring him here. Take him to Nazareth. I want you to raise him. I want you to get him to the point where the Holy Spirit can fill him at the baptism where God will take over. And Joseph, your role is over. That's going to be it. It's not going to be any bigger. There's not going to be any accolades. A star is about to be born. And the star is going to completely overshadow you. Could you imagine... 
could you imagine raising a child that's going to ultimately be the president? I was thinking about this lesson just this week when I was watching the funeral of President Bush. And I just thought, you know, here you have Barbara Bush. She was married to a president, but she also raised a president. And you go, I wonder at what point do you know? If you have a child, and the child's two years old, and it's running around in the nursery, do you look and go, that's going to be a future president one day? At what point do you know? And then they go all the way through, and then they go through high school, and they're wrecking cars, and they're doing all this, and going, well, this is definitely not presidential material. And then they continue, and they go on, they get kicked out of college, whatever, and you're watching, and then there's this curveball that comes in and goes... This guy was just elected. I mean, I would imagine sometimes parents on election night, their jaws drop going, my son is the president of the United States. But not so with Mary. She was told what her son was going to be from Gabriel. You are carrying the king of the world. Is there any proof? Well, Mary, you're a virgin. You have a child and you're a virgin. Yeah, I did think that was kind of weird. You're, what's going to happen in your life is going to be unmistakably God-ordained. And it's not going to be well-received by this world. It's the first person that heard about the child was Herod, and he put out a death sentence. There is, the Messiah has been born kill him. Go to Bethlehem and any male child that's two years old and younger, eliminate them. Get rid of them. So we sit here and we watch what's happening in the life of Joseph. We see how this takes place. There's a very odd little story. If you go back, we won't turn there, but if you go back into the book of Judges, Judges is kind of, if you will, the, the dark ages of the Old Testament. Uh, the the, the Prophets have kind of, the priesthood and the, 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 the Samuels, all that kind of stuff is coming to an end, and the kings haven't really kicked in yet, and everybody's doing what they want to do in their own eyes, and we've got this guy that, that goes off to battle, he makes this decree, he promises God, he makes this vow, that if I am successful in battle, when I come home, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice to the Lord. Do you remember that weird story? And so he does this, God blesses him, he comes home, the, the door opens up, and when the door opens, his daughter comes out, just daddy, and his daughter comes running out, and he's going, man, I have vowed to God that I would sacrifice whatever comes out. Was there a human sacrifice there? Did God accept a human sacrifice? If you'll read it closely, what happens is she goes off in mourning with her fellow sisters, with the other girls, and she's mourning that she'll never get married, and she's mourning that she'll never have a child. She never mourns that when I go home, my dad's going to put me on an altar and run a knife through me. And so what's happening is I am going to be dedicated to the whole thing. It's almost like taking some, some sort of a vow, uh, almost like in the Catholic Church where you'd say I'm going to be a nun and I'm never going to marry, I'm never going to have any children. And so she goes and she mourns and she comes back and says, Lord, you know, to my father, if you have dedicated me to the Lord, then so be it. If you have sacrificed my life to the Lord, then my life to the Lord, show it so it shall be. 
But there's a prophecy built up in it. There's something messianic about it. Because when we get into the New Testament, now this is going to mess up some of your thinking, probably. It may mess up your nativity scene just a little bit. But what happens is we have Joseph, and as Joseph is going to Bethlehem, he's going home. Don't forget that. He's going home. He has to go back to be counted. So Joseph is going back to the home of David. He's going back to the home of the Judahites. So here's David. There's the decree that's been is going back. Man did. Everyone has to go back. And so everyone that's in the tribe of Dan is going back. Everybody in the tribe of Asher is going back. Everybody in the tribe of Judah is coming back. And so he's going back, and here he is with all the other descendants of David. And what happens when he gets home in that era, just like in the book of Judges, the way houses were in that day, the culture of that day, it's still this way in some of the remote parts to this day, it's still this way. The ground floor of a house was more of the livestock. Man, I know a lady that, I, that grew up just, you know, she's basically the same age as me, and they had goats in their house. And I went, Okay, I mean, just to each his own, but they raised goats, and in the winter, they brought the goats in, and she goes, man, we had goats in our house. That's in Shelby County in, you know, 30 years ago. But you go back in this time, and when you would go in, it's the, it's the proverbial, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen, you'd go downstairs, and downstairs is where the livestock would be. And so just like in Memphis where you have urban gardening and you have uh, chickens in your backyard or whatever, you would go into that culture and you'd go down and they may have a sheep. David talks about this when Nathan comes to David and, he, and he's wanting to talk to him about Bathsheba and the whole thing. And he tells him the story about this rich man that had all of these sheep, pastures of sheep. And then there was one poor man that had a sheep and it lived in their house. And, and it was like a child, and it ate from their table, and it slept with their children. This is a Jewish deal in that era. And so you've got a man saying, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. What do you expect to come out of your house? I was expecting a lamb to walk out of my house, not my daughter. I was expecting a, a chicken or a rooster. Now, why in the world would you expect a lamb to come out of your house? Because that's where we keep it. It was basically a barn on the ground floor, and there were living quarters on the second floor. And all the way into the days of Jesus' ministry, have you ever noticed that when they got together, don't, don't miss it, when they get together, they always get together in an upper room. Do you notice that? They get together for the Passover, and they go and they find an upper room. After Jesus ascends and leaves on the day of Pentecost, they had all gathered together in an upper room. When Paul was preaching, he was preaching in an upper room when the little boy fell out of the window and fell to the ground. All the people were always in the upper room. So you would go in. It's almost like a, a, you're a blacksmith, and your shop is on the ground floor. You're a grocer, and your grocery store is on the ground floor, and you live on the second floor. And so that's the culture. When Joseph gets there with Mary, he's showing up with a pregnant wife. He has disgraced the family. That's why he wanted to put her away privately. 
So it's not just Joseph's going, I can't take her home. I can't take her to my people. My dad is going to have a fit. My mother's going to have a fit. My grandfather's going to have a fit. They're not going to receive us. We have hurt the entire name. Everybody's going to look and go, did you hear about Joseph's fiance? She's already pregnant. This would be a stoning offense. And so he's going to go home, and when he gets there, when he arrives, he shows up in Bethlehem. He goes down the little streets of Bethlehem. He gets to whoever the family member is that's still there. I don't know if his dad's still living. It doesn't tell us, but he goes there, and there's no room in the inn. The word that it's using, sometimes the hardest thing in the whole world for us to do is to read the Bible in English. I wish that I could read the original Hebrew and the original Greek. I can't, but I can get a strong concordance and look up words. And I can take a phone with olive tree on it, and all you do is you click on it. When you look at the, the end, there's only one time is an end is a hotel in the New Testament that I could find, and it's during the days of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is walking down. This guy's from the lost ten tribes. He's not of the line of Judah. He's not of the nation of Judah. He's of the nation of Israel. He's the group that went apostate. And here's this Samaritan. He goes down and he sees this guy. He picks him up and he takes him to an end. He takes him to a hotel. He gives them money and says, take care of this guy and change his bandages and feed him and give him a bed, take care of him. But when we get to the Lord's Supper, when we get to the Passover, the room that they're in, this upper room, when we go to the book of Acts and they're waiting on the day of Pentecost, the upper room, Luke is using the same exact word. He's not using the word of a hotel. He's using the word of an upper room. And so what happens is Joseph shows up. He's probably, I always picture it at night, I don't know. It's cold. He's got his wife. She's sitting on a donkey, which is ridiculously prophetic because the kings of Israel did not ride stallions. They rode donkeys. And when he walks in on Good Friday, as he's going into Jerusalem, the week before he's going to be born, he mounts a donkey. That's not out of humility. That's not a, oh, low is me. I'm not worthy of a chariot. I'm just going to ride a donkey. Samuel rode a donkey. David rode a donkey. King Saul rode a donkey. He is coming in the way that a king would come in. And here it is. You would watch Bethlehem. And if the king was coming... He would arrive on a donkey. And you look over, and in the middle of the night, I assume, here's Joseph. Joseph's not riding, by the way. Joseph's walking. Joseph, you get to lead the donkey. You don't get to be the king. You get to be the one that gives feed to the donkey. And so as Joseph is walking this donkey in, there's Mary. And it's not significant that Mary's on the line of David is entering this. Christ is on the donkey. The king the line of David is entering the city of David royally on a donkey. Do you know how many people are there to see it? Not a single solitary one. Where's his family? They are humiliated because she's pregnant. And then they get to what I believe, they get to the family house. They don't get to the Holiday Inn. 
They get to the family house, and when they get there, they knock on the door, and the family, the hierarchy, the, the grandmother, and the grandfather, and the aunts, and the uncles, and everybody has taken all the room upstairs. The upper room is filled. You have to sleep on the first floor. You have to sleep with the donkeys. You have to sleep with the animals. And so here they are. What I believe the manger scene was, what I believe the stable was, is they go into that house, the, the house of Joseph's family, and they're down there, and they're on the ground floor, and everybody else is on the second floor. This gives even greater significance to me if the baby is born down there, the angel goes and tells the shepherds, go back into the city. In the city of Bethlehem, the, the baby has been born. And they go to Bethlehem. They go into the city and they find him and they praise. If this scenario is true, the Savior of the earth has been born on the ground floor and his aunt and his uncle and his grandmother and his grandfather and everybody's upstairs and they are embarrassed of it. They're not worshiping him. They're not praising him. They're not even acknowledging him. Joseph's family is filled in, in Bethlehem. They've all come back, but none of them are there. So, I mean, all of a sudden you think about it. Joseph walks in in the middle of the night and everybody knows that Joseph's coming and he's bringing a, a, a fiancé that's nine months pregnant that's due at any time. He's going to have a support group like you can't imagine. He's going to have all of these family members that are going to come around, put their arms around him and be there, but they've all turned around and they've all left because there is shame in the family. We're not proud of this baby we are embarrassed of this baby. And so we watch this thing that happens, and Joseph's going, man, I wonder if I can put her away privately. Is there a way for me to undo this? Is there a way for me to unengage myself from this woman? Joseph is attempting to bail. Joseph's going, my goodness, she is pregnant. Is there a way that we can annul this? Can I put her away? Can we just pretend that we're not engaged? Can I go on my own way? And an angel shows up in a dream and he says, listen, Joseph, listen, what's going to happen is exactly what God wants, but you're going to have to hang in there, buddy. Now, it's not going to be what you want. It's not going to look exactly like you'd want. But this is what's taking place. And I don't understand this, but in Genesis chapter three, when sin enters, and I don't know how God operates. And I think after I get into eternity, and I've been in eternity for 10 gazillion years, and I have the mind of Christ, and I know as I am known, I think you could come up to me and say, explain to me how God operates. And I'm going to go, I still don't know. I still don't understand. I know that God is not the author of sin. I know that God is not the author of, of, of bad but I also know at the same time that when Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't catch him off guard. He didn't stop and go, what do we do? Nailation for me. It's coming. And here's, here's a shocking revelation for me. If we don't have Genesis 3, if we don't have the fall, without Genesis 3, there's no Revelation chapter 5. 
If you remember in Revelation 5, John is raptured up, if you will. John's caught up into the third heaven, and he shows up at one of the most significant times. It would be like if you had a time machine, if you were back to the future, and you're talking to Doc Brown, and he said, hey, I can put whatever time you want, we can go anywhere. John could not have picked a more significant time. John shows up in, John, in Revelation chapter 4, he shows up in heaven, and Jesus Christ is not there. The thing that you want to notice in Revelation 4 that is beyond significant is it goes into unbelievable detail about God the Father sitting on the throne. It tells us what the rainbow looks like. It tells us the throne. It tells us the four living creatures under the throne. It tells us of the cherubim and the seraphim. It's all of this stuff. There's 24 elders that are there. You're watching all of this stuff with unbelievable precise detail. And then it talks about the Spirit, and the Spirit and His completeness and His fullness looks like seven spirits, like the seven cloven tongues, and it's not seven Holy Spirits, it's one in the, the number of seven in its fullness and its completeness. And we see the Holy Spirit, and He's writing it. He sees God the Father, and He's writing it. Jesus is nowhere to be found. Here's something to throw out. If Jesus is not there in Revelation 4, where in the world could He possibly be? He's on earth. John is caught up. He, God is saying, John, I want you to see something. This is crazy cool. If I can teleport you anywhere, this is the best. God could have brought John to creation. said, John, you're going to love this. I have brought you back. Get ready, John. Sit here. Get your pen and paper. Get ready. Here I go. Let there be light. Whoa! And we have the greatest book in the Bible of John's firsthand account of watching the creation. And God's going, nah, I can do better than that. I'm going to take you to the neatest thing ever. My son has become a man. He's become flesh and blood. He's gone to the earth. He's on earth. He's there. He's not in heaven right now. When you come to heaven, you're going to find the Father and you're going to find the Spirit. But Jesus is not here. I'm going to bring you up and let you see what heaven was like when Jesus was not here during that little brief 33-year period of time. And then I'm going to let you watch and record as he returns. And so Jesus is down there on the earth, and what's so cool about John is he gets to see it from both sides. So Jesus has gone through the death, the burial, the resurrection. Now he's standing there on the Mount of Olives, and he says this great commission, and he says that the way that I'm leaving, I will come back the same way. John is one of the disciples that's watching it. And all of a sudden, you sit there and you watch, and Jesus ascends into heaven, and he disappears. An angel comes and goes, why are you gazing? He's going to come back the very same way. And I would imagine John probably sat there and goes, wouldn't it be cool if you could be in heaven and watch that take place? We watched him leave. What, don't you know that the homecoming was Unbelievable. And then John goes through his life. He goes through being martyred. If Fox's Book of Martyrs is accurate, they've already tried to, uh, to kill John once by boiling him in oil. And so if this guy has been boiled in oil and lived to it, and now he's out there on the Isle of Patmos, and they have him out there, he isn't going to look human. 
This guy, I mean, what color is he at this point? Man, I don't know. Usually, I mean, he's just burnt. And, and, and it's this old guy, and he's hobbling around. Probably everything that he does hurts. And God catches him up and says, John, I want to let you see what it was like when Jesus came back. In Revelation 4, they're saying, worthy is the creator for everything that he created. And then all of a sudden, this lamb comes in in Revelation 5, and the lamb looks as though it has been slaughtered. It's a bloody lamb. And they begin to sing a new song, and they begin to say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power forever and ever and ever. And John's sitting there going, this is ridiculously cool. Now, that can't happen without sin. That can't happen without fall. The reason that Jesus became our Savior is because we became a sinner. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, and their children had never sinned, and their children had never sinned, we would not know the of Jesus right now. And Revelation 5 would never take place. We would go up and we would see the triune God. We'd see the first member. We'd see the second member that was Melchizedek or the angel of the Lord or the fourth man in the fire. But he was not the Savior. Isaiah never knew him as Savior. Abraham never knew him that way. They knew him as the angel of the Lord. But now he's become flesh. Now he's become man. And now he has died and he's returned. And when we get there, the glory of God, the the greatness of heaven is going to be the redeemer. But we have to have the redeemed to have the redeemer. So we get back to this story. Do you know who's speaking today? Do do you know? Let me give you just a very brief description of who I am. I am a miserable failure. Do you know who I'm talking to? A room full of miserable failures. And what if instead of us being disqualified, if God looks and says, can I have the failure? It's unbelievable what I can do with a failure. Well, why won't God do anything with me? Because you might not be able to admit that you're a failure. I'm still in damage control. I don't want everybody to know exactly who I am. I'm trying to put her away privately. Why would you do that? I don't want anybody to know. And then all of a sudden we stand before God and we go, there's nothing to reveal. I'm a mess. Now I remember preaching down at the Union Mission when you got a clinical alcoholic. I mean, you had a guy that, I mean, his life is shot with it. When they ever got to the point, this is one of the old AA things, when they ever got to the point where they said, I can't do it. I am an alcoholic. I'm a failure. I'm a mess. They were halfway out. The the reason that they couldn't get over it is because they couldn't ever totally act that I am a mess. So we get to this point where we look and we say, the fact that I am a mess is what makes the second member of the Godhead 
Jesus. It takes my failure to create the Savior. No sin. No Savior. And so we look and we go, God, do you, did you orchestrate it? Did you make us limited so that we would fall? Was it your purpose for us to fall? No, it wasn't my purpose. No, I didn't create sin. No, I don't tempt. James tells us that. No, I don't, no, I don't tempt you to sin. No, I don't tempt anyone. No, I didn't create Satan to be Satan. Satan's not actually the, uh, the, the, the guy with the scar on Willy Wonka. Do you remember that? Remember the bad guy on Willy Wonka? And he was trying to bribe you away from the tickets? And anybody that had a golden ticket, I want to take yours. And he's this evil guy, this horrible scar on his face. And then by the end of the movie, the little boy that's in the office, and the guy comes in and he's scared and he goes, oh, that guy works for me. I was tempting people to be able to weed out to get to the right one. That's not what God's doing. Jesus, Satan is not a good guy that's out there trying to do some sort of weeding. My sin is not where God looks at it and goes, hey, I wanted you to do that. But in the midst of it, like I said, I don't understand God. But in the midst of it, God takes it and does something Unbelievable. And when I can actually go, you know, I've asked God to forgive me of whatever it is 10,000 times. I would imagine everybody in this room has something. Probably it's the thing that you don't want anybody else to know about. It's funny how we rank our sins. There's some sins that we almost are proud of. There, I mean, there's some, some of our sins are just, oh my goodness, I, I, I admit it, I love to eat. Let me, that was not an illustration. That was a confession. That was true. I love to eat. I, I do this or I do that or oh my goodness, I just, oh, I, I, I struggle with jealousy over that. But then there's some things that we don't talk about. There's things that we don't bring up. There's things that we will hide at all costs. We don't want anybody to know. We'll go in full Joseph damage control. Let's put it away privately the best that we know how. And we have probably asked God to take this away from us. And we have asked God for strength. We've asked God for deliverance. We've asked God for forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness. Have you ever thanked him for it? Have you ever gotten to a point where you went, God, this thing that cripples me, this thing that keeps me disqualified all the time, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you that I struggle with that. Thank you that I have a weakness in my life that I'm so ashamed of that it keeps me broken and in need of a Savior. There's a movie that's out right now. I've watched it my entire life. I've watched it this year already. I'll probably watch it another two or three times this year. I've, I own, I've got it on videotape. I've got it on DVD. I have downloaded it on Apple, to, uh, Apple uh, TV. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The theology in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is unbelievable. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was a story that showed up in 1937 in the Montgomery Ward Christmas catalog. It, it, I don't know what it is. It's about it. Somebody made a movie. 
out of it, and here it is, and you watch it. it I don't know what it is. It's kind of weird. It's a little bit creepy. It's not a cartoon. It's not clay. Uh, it's whatever they were doing in the 60s. You explain the 60s to me, and I can explain Rudolph to you. So you have Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and the story is about three failures. One of them is Rudolph. He can't do any of the reindeer games. He's got a red nose. He can't, uh, his parents are embarrassed of him. There's another little guy, the, third, the second guy, and his name is Hermie. And he is an elf that's horrible at making toys. He's a failure, and he wants to be a dentist. And then there is a prospector looking for the, uh, the, the mysterious, legendary vein of peppermint named Yukon Cornelius. And everywhere he goes, he throws his, his pick in there, and he picks it up and licks it. He goes, nothing. But there's this vein of peppermint that he's looking for. So we have a prospector that's a failure, a toy maker that's a failure, and a reindeer that's a failure. And off they go. By the end of the movie, they're the heroes. Christmas is canceled. We can't have Christmas. Santa Claus has officially said the storm is too bad. They come in, and here comes Herbie and Rudolph and Yukon Cornelius. And there was the abominable snowman. And the abominable snowman, he has fallen. Yukon Cornelius has, uh, the dentist has pulled all of his teeth out. Yukon Cornelius has redeemed him and brought him back. And he's in the Santa's workshop, and he's the one that puts the star. And we go, oh man, no one could ever put the star on top of the tree. But now we have this old abominable snowman that's tall enough to reach. And Christmas is saved because of three failures. Do you know, maybe your role, maybe my role, maybe the Lord is going to save Christmas, maybe the, the, the story of Christ, maybe the, the account of the baby that was born in a manger in a feeding trough with the rejection of a family, maybe, just maybe, God uses failures. It's a thought. Maybe. Maybe Moses wasn't usable until he had committed murder and left and went into the wilderness for 40 years before God puts a bush before him saying, Moses, I'm ready to use you. And Moses is sitting there going, God, you, it can't be me. I can't even speak. I'm a complete failure. And he's going, that's why I'm going to use you. Maybe the sin that you have, it's not a justification for it. But that thing that you hate in your life might be what God's going to use. And the thing that keeps you on the bench might be the thing that should be putting you in the game. And you're walking around all the time going, God can't use me. I'm disqualified. And God's going, everybody that I use is disqualified. That's the only thing that I use. And so here's Joseph. Back to our original story. Here's Joseph. And a star is going to be born. Bradley Cooper is going to fade away forever. And Lady Gaga is going to be bigger 
than his career ever could have imagined. He thought he had made it, only to find out that that wasn't it at all. And there's this chance that you and I, as we are fading, because there's a star that's going to happen, Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to come in our life. Jesus is going to dwell within us. There's going to be a star, and I can't outshine this thing. I can't compete with it. Maybe what I can do is reflect. Maybe I can let the star be the star, and I can just be a planet that's reflecting from a different source. And instead of me going, how do I get my fire started? Maybe God goes, I'm not going to start a fire in you. I'm just going to let you reflect a fire that's already burning. It's a thought. Let's pray. Thank you for what you did when you came to this earth. I pray, God, that the remaining uh, weeks of this holiday season would be a time where we we pray, we seek, we reflect, we ponder. To see what our role is in what you're doing in this world. Joseph embraced his role. Mary embraced her role. The shepherds and the wise men, they embraced their roles. And we still celebrate the impact that those people, those humble people of obedience, the impact that they had upon our lives. Would you show us what our role is? And would you give us the grace to embrace that? Please do that in our lives. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so, uh, let's see. Terry and Michael, would you come up and help me? Barbara, are you going to pray? All right, uh, who else will, okay, I know, that's what I'm saying, right, that's what I'm, uh, Susan Wampler, come up here and help us. I'm going to get Barbara to be on one side, and I'm going to get Susan to be on the other, and uh, if you have something specific that you need prayer about while we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, um, you go and let them pray for you. Let them be a blessing to you. Let them appeal on your behalf. For God to help you administer in your life and whatever that specific need is. Okay? All right. We're going to take bread and we're going to take wine and juice. And we're going to eat and we're going to drink. And we're going to remember what the Lord Jesus did for us. Earlier today I was talking to some of the, well, the worship team. Just about how Christmas is a wonderful story. But it really has no significance at all. Unless we connect it to the story of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. He could not die if he didn't come. 
But if he just came, we're still left in our desperate, hopeless situation. And so let us remember not just his birth today. Let us remember that he did die on the cross for your sins and for my sin. Okay? So I'm going to take bread and I'm going to offer that to you. And you have wine and juice. The juice is yellow and the wine is purple. So you come and you eat and you drink and you remember and you rejoice in what the Lord Jesus did for you. Okay?